good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I didn't introduce myself before. Uh, it's good to see so many of you here this morning. We continue this morning in our series in the Gospel of Luke. We've been in this Gospel for almost a year now. It is a bit, one of the bigger books in the Bible. Uh, we will continue all the way through Easter. Uh, towards Easter, we're going to take the Passion narrative and begin to follow Jesus on his journey to the cross as the calendar begins to turn towards that. But for this fall, we've been taking a look at some different thematic elements in uh, Luke's Gospel. Luke's gospel is unique. He's a unique guy. He has unique concerns and theological uh, problems he's trying to solve. And, and so in, in the scope of his entire gospel, we've, we've tried to single out some of, the, um, some of the really big themes and take one of those each month. And for the month of November, we've been talking about the subject of prayer. So we come this morning to one of the more famous stories that is unique to Luke's gospel. And much of the material on prayer from Jesus' ministry is unique to Luke. And we see this here in Luke 18. So if you have a Bible and you'd like to read with me, it's Luke 18, 1 through 8. If you don't, it's printed for you in your worship folder, and it'll also be on the screen behind me as we read from this passage here in Luke 18. So let's read together. And he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not bear me down by her continual coming. That word means so that she, she's assaulting him, basically is what it means. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect? who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is God's word. Prayer is central to Christianity because Christianity claims that we were made to walk and talk with God. I mean, think about it. That, that's the story in our Bible, isn't it? There at the beginning in the book of Genesis, literally, the first man and the first woman... That's what they did in the Garden of Eden. They took walks with God in the garden in the cool of the day. And they had conversation with him the way two friends might. Of course, we know that we have lost this sense of communion with him because of our sin. But if you want to cast Christianity in in, in a certain way, you could say that Christianity really is uh, the solution. It's the regaining of all that we've lost. It is the solution to this problem in our lives. It is the goal of Jesus' work for us to make it possible for us to walk and talk with him again, not just someday in future in heaven, heaven, but right now as we go throughout the days and months and seasons and years of our lives. And that's that's why when the Bible talks about prayer, it says things like pray without ceasing. You know that verse there in 1 Thessalonians 5? It's an intimidating statement, isn't it? I find it hard to pray for five minutes, to be honest with you. Pray without ceasing. What could that mean? Well, I think it means first that prayer is a posture of the heart. It's a certain way of doing life. And Paul Miller, as we've said before, when he wrote his book on prayer, he called it a praying life because he wants us to think about prayer something more than just what the pastor does on Sunday or a few short sentences after you read your Bible in the morning if you even get that far. Prayer is is the way Christians do their life, always paying attention to God in everything. It's not only, a, not only a, a posture of the heart, though, it's also a practice. Prayer requires a system of some kind, time and place and rhythm, a rhythm of execution and repetition and so forth. 
uh, to really be a person of prayer requires all of that. And so, uh, in light of that larger picture, the problem that this particular text is really aimed at, and again, you know, in four weeks of sermons on this, we can't possibly get to everything that, that, that the Bible would say about this particular subject. We're kind of limited to what the texts we're dealing with have to say. And this morning, there's a very specific issue that this text is really trying to drive us towards, and it's just this. How do you keep praying for things that are important to you when it feels like nothing's happening? How do you keep paying attention to God, which is what prayer is, when it feels like he isn't paying any attention to you? Or how do you find the strength to keep going in your prayers and not lose heart when life begins to get overwhelming, when what you're up against is really hard? This is what this parable is about. And Luke tells us there in verse 1, if you look uh, there with me, he tells us this. He says, he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect, in other words, for the reason... This is the reason for the parable, for the reason that they ought to always pray and to not lose heart. So that's what's before us this morning. But before we get any further into it, I mean, I, you know, I, I need to, just, just so that everybody, you know, there's honesty and transparency and all that kind of stuff, I have to tell you uh, that, it, that it's very intimidating to me, this subject, because this is the besetting sin, the besetting sin of my life. Uh, and, and really, a sermon like this that would be inspiring for you and your own struggles with prayer should be filled with stories uh, of, you know, successes and all of the, the great things you've seen God do through your own uh, prayer life. And honestly, I don't have very many of those stories. Um, probably, I mean, I can't, really couldn't think of any, to be honest. Because um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a prayer flunky. Uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just dysfunctional when it comes to this. And it's because I'm, I, I'm, better off in my own mind running my life by myself. I want to be God. If you, and if you want to be God, you don't need to pray. Uh, and so it really, it really cuts me to the core. Uh, and, and, but here's what I'm banking on, and I'm really hoping for this. I'm hoping that you're as dysfunctional as I am in this way, so that maybe we have something to talk about. If not, please come to me afterwards, and the next time we get this subject, I'll just have you come teach, because we all probably could benefit from that more. But I'm banking on the fact that we all can say this is a struggle. So much so... Uh, that even in the, the beginning of this church, when we wrote our mission statement documents together, you know, some of the core people, uh, we had spent months and months and months laboring over this, and we got to the end where we were ready to kind of, you know, present this to people and say, here's the great things that we hope God does for, through us. Here, here's what we're really going to do in our city to really see all this stuff happen, and we realized nowhere in any of that was, it, was prayer even mentioned. As if it wasn't even like on our radar as being one of the strategies of what... So I just say that to say in full disclosure... Uh, I'm, I'm a dysfunctional prayer. And so what I'm aiming at this morning is to help us uh, reach for what the Scriptures aim us at, not necessarily what is true of our, my experience or maybe even yours. And so how do we pray and not lose heart? How do, we, how do we keep paying attention to God in prayer when it doesn't feel like He's paying attention to us? And so there are three things that I want to talk about, and they're the three points of the outline that you have. And the first is, uh, if, if Jesus is concerned that we pray and not lose heart, we have to know what it means first to lose heart. What does it mean? What's that phrase mean there? Secondly, so if the, if the danger is that we would lose heart, then what does it mean to not lose heart? What's the opposite of that? What would a life uh, not like that look like? And then thirdly, how it is that you really can find courage and be bold instead of losing heart, no matter how bad things might get in your life. Those are our three points, Okay. And so let's just start here with, with asking the question, then what does it mean? Jesus is concerned. He says the danger is that we would lose heart, and then because we've lost heart, stop praying. So what does that mean? What's that phrase 
really mean there. If you want to put it another way, he says, if you struggle with prayer, as I and most of us do, then and you're looking for a reason why, you can't figure out, you can't unlock this door in your life. What is the reason? It's probably because somewhere along the way you've lost heart. What does that mean? It's a really important phrase in the Bible. And there's actually an idiom that we use in our own day and time that explains this. When we say, you've probably heard this, somebody says, man, she, you know, he's really got heart. She's, she's really got heart, you know? So I started to think of examples, and of course the first one that came to mind was uh, of my childhood lore, Rocky Balboa. Which, by the way, did you know there's a new Rocky movie coming out next week? And I didn't even know this, and I like saw it and about freaked out. There's a new Rocky movie coming out, and that's called Creed, because it's about Apollo Creed's son. But anyway, and then I started to think, I've got to take my sons to see this. And then I thought, oh wait, no, then we've got to watch all the Rocky movies before we go see it, you know? And then I thought, well no, if I, I'm not going to show them Rocky 1, because they won't want to watch Rocky 2 if I show them Rocky 1. We're just going to skip to Rocky 3, because it's the best, and Hulk Hogan's in it, and it's all, you know. And, and, then, I, and, then, I thought, oh, and then I thought, my sons have never seen Rocky. I'm a failure as a, I mean, I just like, like, I'm a failure as a parent. I don't think they've ever seen those movies. But Rocky Balboa, right, who wasn't the biggest or the strongest or the most talented fighter, but he always won. Against all odds, he always won. Why? Because he had heart. He had heart. And that's why we loved him so much. Or Rudy Rudiger, the Notre Dame walk-on, who was smaller and slower than everyone else on the team, but he had something the rest of the team didn't. He had heart. And so at the end of the film, Coach Parsegian says to him in, in his office, you know, they're having that exchange, and he says, I wish God would put your heart in some of my players' bodies. He had heart. He had heart, and so he didn't quit, no matter how hard, tough things got, no matter how many times he was knocked down. And, and so that heart, the idea of heart, he has heart, we say. And it refers to this internal motivational drive that no matter how tough things get, no matter how many times you, know, you get knocked down, this courage, this internal strength and solidity, you might say, that, that helps you face overwhelming odds without being intimidated or afraid. To lose heart, then, means that you lose this internal core motivational drive. You lose your courage. You lose your internal confidence and strength. And I think solidity, at least that's the way that the, the, you know, this, this solidity and strength internally. So the psalmist says, I'm poured out like wax, or excuse me, like water, and my bones are out of joint, and my heart, the psalmist says, the metaphor he uses is my heart is like wax, it is melting within my breast. And so to lose heart means that you melt down, literally, on the inside. You, you, uh, you lose your courage. You become discouraged. You lose your motivational core. And, and, and as a result, when things get hard, uh, you, you, know, you give up. You just, you just can't go on. You, you really struggle to fight through it. And Luke says the reason that we have such a hard time with prayer, and really the reason you know, all of life is hard, or the, you know, our problems with all of life is that we too easily lose heart. And so, let's ask this question then. If this is really the problem, then why is it? Why is it that we're so prone to this? And really, this isn't in the text per se, but we can, by implication, draw some of these things out. But there are a couple of reasons that I started to think about this week as I was meditating on this that are particularly important for us to talk about, I think. And so, why, why are we so prone to this? Why are we so prone to losing heart? And I think one of the first reasons that we could say is because the world is hard. 
I mean, the world is hard. We, there are, you know, we grasp at the promises of, of the gospel and the Bible. We, we grasp at the things God says he will do for us that are true, no matter how things might feel in our lives. But in many times in our grasping after these things, we forget that the world that we live in is broken. So as a result, things no longer work the way they're supposed to. We live in a fallen world due to sin. And, and, and in a fallen world, the world is no longer what it once was, nor is it yet what it one day will be. But for now, we live in a broken, run-down um, you know, world that's, that's, that's corrupted, corrupted and falling apart. It's a world of war and, and corruption and divorce and cancer. And all of this, we're told, is due to sin. The world is hard. There's a story... It's a really cryptic story and, and a really cryptic book that, that preachers don't really dare to preach very often in, in the Old Testament scriptures, Daniel the prophet. And in the story, Daniel is uh, among God's people who've been exiled out of the promised land and sent to this foreign, you know, they're in the employ of this foreign power and they're being oppressed, oppressed and crushed by this imperial power. And Daniel begins to pray to the Lord that he would deliver his people and that he would do the things that he promised and that God would come to their aid and rescue them uh, and, and yet, it doesn't feel to Daniel as if God, you know, his prayers are getting through the roof, as we say. It feels like God's not listening, God's not paying any attention. And, and, and as the story goes on in chapter 10, all of a sudden, this, this, this man shows up there, in, you know, right in front of Daniel. This angelic being uh, who, who has power and authority, and, and, and Daniel kind of falls on his face. And here's what the angel tells him. He says, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand... And humbled yourself before the Lord. Your words have been heard and I have come. So he says, he says, Daniel, as soon as you started praying, God sent me to come. I mean, the moment you opened your mouth to start praying, I was sent by God to come to your aid. But listen to what he goes on to say in Daniel 10, uh, verse 12. But, but he says, I've come. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia, this, and this is a spiritual being, by the way. The prince of the, the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael came to help me. Okay, now this is an angel talking, talking about being sent by God to help Daniel, but he, he encountered another spiritual force on his way that, that detained him for three weeks until another angel named Michael came and helped him. You know, and we were talking about this in our pastor's meeting this Wednesday of all the guys that preach, and we basically got to the end and we pinky swore that we would never preach on that text because nobody knows what in the world any of that means. Like, we're just going to stay away from that one, okay? Stay away from that one. But, so it's hard to really know what all that is. Except that God sent an angel to Daniel the moment he started praying and it took him 21 days to get there because he was opposed. So we can say that there are powerful spiritual forces of evil afoot in the world and they oppose God's work in the world. And Though they cannot ultimately thwart it, they can oppose it and therefore the world is hard. The world is hard. It is broken. And there are spiritual forces of evil organized in opposition to God's work. And that can mean delays... And in the short term, even apparent defeats, profound enough that we can easily become discouraged and lose heart. The world is hard. But here's the big thing. Not only is the world hard, but if you've been walking with him for very long, you know that right alongside of the reality of how hard the world can be is the fact that God is often slow. God's just slow. Abraham waited 25 years, 25 years for the son that God promised him. Joseph had a dream when he was 17 years old 
And it was not until his late 30s that the things that God told him were going to happen, happened. Moses was called to ministry. And then he spent 40 years, 40 years in the desert as a shepherd before he was finally ordained. Israel spent 400 years in a wilderness wandering around before God answered their prayers and delivered them and brought them into the land that he had promised. And we, the church, have been waiting for 2,000 years for Jesus to fulfill his word and to return. I mean, you know, you, I mean, that's just a small sampling of what we could look at in the scriptures. And I think the thing that we could say is that God seems to have no problem being slow in carrying out his purposes. He's in no hurry. And I think that really puts us at a distinct disadvantage because the technological advances that we've experienced in our culture have trained us to expect immediate results. So when something doesn't happen right away, we immediately assume it must be broken. And it really does come into our spiritual lives too. But you know, everything that's worth having really does come slowly, doesn't it? Character's slow. There's no fast track to the fruit of the Spirit in our kids and ourselves. Character's slow, wisdom's slow, even good, good wine, you know, needs time to age. You can't hurry the process up. And this is true of most things in life. And it's really even more profound than this. I, to, I told, uh, we looked at the story two weeks ago of Mary and Martha uh, this family, there's a family in Bethany that Jesus loves, these two women and their brother Lazarus, and there's a, an event that happens in John's Gospel in chapter 11 where Lazarus, their brother, becomes sick. And so the first thing they do, these women, because they know the Lord, and they know he's got this healing ministry, and, and he loves this family. So that you know, Lazarus gets sick, and they send word to Jesus, Jesus, the, man, the one that you love is sick, would you come? And here's what we read. This is so perplexing to me. And yet, in, many, in some strange ways, encouraging to me too. In John 11, we read that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. <laughs> no, no, wait. Time. No, he's sick. Come. No, he loved them. And so he stayed two days longer. And you know the story, don't you? What happened? Lazarus died. And then he came. Now, that doesn't, that, there's no, you know, I said in the first, there's no theological box that you can really put that in. That, that really makes no sense. And, and it's terrifying, isn't it? I mean, isn't it terrifying to think that, that, uh, that he doesn't operate according to our plans? I mean, Jesus, Jesus, and, and, and do you remember when he came to town after the death, you know, so Lazarus dies? And then he says, let's go, it's time to go now. And he comes, and do you remember Mary and Martha? They both run out to meet him as soon as he comes into the town. And do you remember what they say to him? Why didn't you come? If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. But Jesus loved them, and so he stayed two days longer. That, that's really hard. I mean, it's really hard. We don't own him. He's doing good, but we don't get to decide what that good is. And we read in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, that the Lord is not slow. That feels slow, doesn't it? But yet we read, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you. And so when God is slow, he's being patient. When he's slow, it's patience, not punishment. It's mercy. It's a severe mercy for sure, many times, but it's mercy nonetheless. But here's the problem. Because the world is hard and because God is often slow, you know, the pain, the, the pain that that can create in our lives can result in us often losing heart. We shut down. That's what that means. We disengage emotionally, and we become cynical. And the teaching of this parable is that cynicism is the real enemy of prayer. 
Because cynicism is distant and critical, but never in, you know, it, it, you know, cynicism, the cynic is the person who says, yes, behind every solar lining, you know, there's still a cloud. Right? The cynic is always observing, always critiquing, but never engaging, never loving, never hoping. So Paul Miller, I love the, I love the imagery he uses. He writes, cynicism is passive, cocooning itself from the passions of the great cosmic battle we're engaged in. It's a way of cocooning your heart against the pain of, of the disappointments that, or the fear of what might happen if, if God doesn't really show up the way you need for him to. So cynicism is hopelessness. It's a bitter resignation that nothing will ever change, that nothing will ever be any different than it is right now. The pain and the disappointment of life is inevitable. And so, you know, because that can become overwhelming and so painful, eventually you stop showing up. You know, you stop showing up for life. Or you, or you show up for life expecting to be disappointed. You go into relationships expecting the people that you love to, to, to do you wrong and disappoint you. And it begins to color everything that you, you, you see about that person. Or you just stop showing up altogether. You become numb and emotionally distant. And what's, what's interesting is typically it's a result of a broken heart. That there's a deep wound somewhere that is never fully healed. And the pain and the disappointment begin to color your perception of everything, of everyone, even God. And that's why it's such a problem, is that it's out of touch with reality. Because at the end of the day, underneath, underneath all of that that I just described, cynicism really begins to question the active goodness of God on our behalf. And it's so subtle. It's so, it's so subtle the way it works in our lives. We say it is what it is. Don't we? You ever heard anybody say that? It is what it is. I want to choke people when they say that. I really do. I, I mean, I do. It's, it just gets on me. And I've, I said that, you know, and I said that to a group of women not long ago, and they were like, what? Because it seems so harmless, doesn't it? It is what it is. But it's cynicism. Because what we mean is there's nothing I can do about it. It's never going to change. I've just got to learn to live with it. You see what that is? That's, you're shutting your heart down so that you don't feel the pain. But is that right? Is that true? I don't think so. That's not in touch with reality. Things are never what they are. I mean, that assumes the universe is static, but it isn't static. It's dynamic. God is always at work. Life's going somewhere. There's a, there's a story that's unfolding that we're in the middle of, and we don't know what the end might be, but, we, but, but, but what we do know is that we're in the middle of something that God is doing that's good. So whatever something might be right now, that's not what it is. That's what it is right now. That's not the end of the story. But see, this is so subtle. It's the air we breathe. We don't even notice it. And, and, and even the little s- s- things we say. Uh, but the, the cynicism is unbelief. It's contrary to the gospel. That's why it's such a problem. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation that can change any circumstance, any heart, any person, any marriage, any family, any relationship, any group of people. See, the first service just totally... There's no amen to that in the first service. And I told him, it, and I told him it's because we, we, we don't have access to that. That's not right there in our hearts that we really believe that. What we believe is the cynical part. That's the thing that we can access the most. But it really is true. The gospel is the power of God that can change anything. The God of the Bible is a God of resurrection. And so the, the, over and over again we hear, is the arm of the Lord too short? What's the answer? No. Is anything too difficult for him? No. That's the truth. But the problem with cynicism is it leaves you doubting that and, then, and therefore unable to dream. It robs you of your imagination. What is, truly is what is. But we're not made to live like that. 
We're not made to barely show up for life and go through the motions. We're made to be proactive, full of imagination and hope and the possibility of what might be because of God's power and His Spirit, not only what is at the moment. Whether it's something you're believing for your kids, something you're believing for yourself, for your work, for this church, whatever the case might be. And the parable, the, the woman in this parable, this widow, is a picture of this. I mean, look, she doesn't stop showing up. She's been taken advantage of. There's a deep hurt in her life. Somebody has, somebody has, there's injustice that she's experienced. Somebody has offended her and hurt her in a very real way. And what you would do in that day is you would bring the person that had offended, that where, wherever, wherever the disagreement was, you'd bring them to a judge, much like we do today. And at first, this judge doesn't side with her. He, he tells her no. But look, he, she gets the no, and it doesn't phase her at all. She, she doesn't quit. She doesn't give up. She doesn't feel sorry for herself and shut down. She keeps coming again and again and again until she finally gets from him what she needs. And the amazing thing is that Jesus says, this is how you should pray. This is what what prayer should look like. I mean, this woman, she's a model of boldness. No matter what happens in her life, no matter how hard things get, no matter how many times she's told no, no matter how long she's made to wait, she doesn't lose heart. She doesn't shut down and accept that it is what it is. Because she knows something that's true, that as the scripture says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Do you know the next verse? Therefore, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Confidence. And that's the mark of a Christian person, assurance, boldness in coming before God, confidence that he hears our prayers and is working all things together for our good, even when we can't see how it's happening, even if we ultimately never see how it's happening, not fear, not dread, not uncertainty, not a small vision of what can be. This widow is not ashamed to ask again and again and again. What's fascinating to me is that her asking really isn't demanding. This is how we experience people like this, but I think Jesus experiences it very different. He sees something very childlike in this woman that should be true of all of us because you know and really how many times does a child ask for something that she wants has anybody experienced this okay what does what does no to a child mean a number of things it could mean not yet it could mean i'll wait until a more opportune time to bring this up again it may mean i'm asking the wrong one right it may mean i need to go get reinforcements and come back it can mean a number of things, but what it definitely doesn't mean, no does not mean no. No means something like not yet or I'll, I'm thinking about it. And listen, they can wear you down, can't they? It's no big deal to ask again and again and again for kids. You know why? You know why it's not a big deal? For us, it feels demanding. It feels rude. For adults, it's, it's, not, you know, you know, it's not preferable. But for kids, kids, it's no big deal to ask again and again and again. You know why? Because it's how they do all their life. Think about it for a minute. They don't have any other choice. They can't, kids can't do life on their own. Uh, they need their parents, and when they're really young, they need, they, they need them for everything. So their boldness to ask again and again and again is just because it's the way they've come to do all their whole life. It's humility. It's not, it's not demanding this on their part. It's humility, and this is the humility that we see in this woman. She doesn't have any other choice. There's nothing else that she can do besides come to this judge. There, I mean, there really is no other option available to her. Like the child, there's no other option available to them either, and so the teaching is though we don't often feel like it, there's really no other option available to us in many things in our lives either. 
See, that's the teaching. A child's life is full of possibility. This struck me. A child's life is full of possibility because they're not, they, they still believe they're not limited by their weaknesses. We don't. But a child's life is full of possibility because what, what is magnified in their imagination is their parents' love. Not that they're limited by their weaknesses. This lady, she's a model of boldness. But really, specifically, a model of boldness in prayer. And this is a parable about prayer. This widow has a problem. She doesn't lose heart. She doesn't quit showing up for life because of it. But notice, she doesn't get busy in her own strength trying to fix it either, does she? She doesn't have any strength. She's a widow. And so she has one strategy, and that is to ask. Because that is all she can do. And that's hard. That's hard. It's choosing to live in the desert. I said two weeks ago... You can go through life doing or asking and doing is much preferable because when you're doing, you, you feel powerful. You feel powerful in your doing. You're going to solve the problem. You still have, there's something you can do. You feel in control. But asking, getting to a place to where the only option you have is to ask is much harder because it feels really out of control. And yet, God would say, not only in the big things, not only when life just runs you over and crushes you and you're, you're reduced to dust and, dust and ash and all you have left, is to appeal to him. But even the small things that we should go through our lives asking rather than doing, that that's the way to access spiritual power. It's the way to access the change and the possibility of the future that we hope and desire from God. And really it's founded upon uh, two things. And the first is uh, that there is a pattern in the scriptures and in the history of people of faith, and particularly Christian people, there's a pattern of, of people prevailing upon God in prayer that should encourage us. Whether it's Abraham praying for Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, or Moses praying for the stubborn people of Israel when God was ready to blot them from the face of the earth, or the people of Nineveh turning from their sins and begging God for mercy. God, over and over again in the scriptures, and we're people who believe in his sovereignty, but you have to make sense of over and over again in the Bible, God says, I'm going to do this, and then someone prays, and God changes his mind based upon what those people have prayed. There's a, there's a pattern of prevailing upon God in prayer that should encourage us. Martin Luther referred to bold praying as conquering God. And he had pretty good theology, okay? But the second thing is, is, is knowing that we're, when we're praying uh, that we're in the middle of a story that God is writing that the scripture promises will ultimately end with our good and his glory. That there's a story. Whatever's happening in your life at this moment, the mo- your moment is not the reality of your life. Your moment is but a moment in a larger story that God is writing. And we may not know the ending, uh, but we know that he is good no matter where we are in it. And Paul Miller in his book, he talks a lot about this. And at the very end, I, just, I found this this morning actually as I was preparing, but he has this chart. And he says, if you, pr- if you pray, uh, f- if, if you become a person who forgets that whatever's going on in your life, you're in the middle of a story. If you forget that, here the, he just lists some words that will become true, some... some um, some descriptions of the kind of person you'll become if you pray, if you live as if there's no story. He says you'll become bitter, listen to this, bitter, angry, aimless, cynical, controlling, hopeless, thankless, blaming. That's a person who who doesn't believe that God's at work for them. That the pain of whatever they're experiencing right now is just part of the story that he's telling but if you can, if you can live and if you can pray as if your life is an unfolding story written by someone who loves you and is good, then here's, these, are, these, are the, these are the character qualities. Listen, waiting, watching, wondering, praying, submitting, hoping, thanking, repenting. 
man, I want to be that second person. We were talking about these things uh, in, in our pastor's meeting, as I said, and uh, I was reminded of a story of a friend of mine, uh, Jeanette O'Brien, who, um, who died of cancer about a year ago now. And uh, we were talking about her this past week, and um, you know, I was reminded, somebody told me that her constant prayer, somebody, they, people would ask her, you know, what, how can we pray? And, um, and she got to where the only thing she asked people to pray, she just would say, pray that I will not become bitter. Just pray that. And then Tim Rice reminded me that, that uh, her dying words uh, about a year ago, uh, the last thing that she, the last words she, she put out into the world were, I believe that God has been good to me. That is the faith on the earth that the Son of Man is looking for when he comes. And that's the key to obeying the teaching of the passage, faith. We don't pray because of unbelief. And so the key to praying without ceasing is faith, to have the right idea about what God is like and then viewing all of your life through the lens of what is true of him. And this is really what this parable is constructed to do. This is the argument that Jesus is making in this parable. Look, look here, why does the judge decide for the widow? I mean, we're told it wasn't his character or his compassion. Look at how he's described there in verse 2. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God, nor respe- neither feared God so he didn't, have, he didn't have any character, nor respected man, so there was no compassion either. And I can tell you, from first-hand experience, that our county courthouse here in Polk County is full of men and women of true character and compassion. I'm thankful for that. But this guy was not a good guy. I mean, judges in the Old Testament Scriptures were to be honorable, full of integrity, compassionate, particularly towards orphans and widows. That was even a clear command of the Bible. Not this guy. He doesn't care what other people think about him. He feels no obligation to God. He's not moved by compassion for her case at all. This is what this description means. He's not, he's, he just doesn't care. He really just doesn't care. He's mailed it in, and yet he eventually does the right thing. Why? Well, he tells us. Look at verses 4 and 5. Though I neither fear God nor respected man. I mean, he's admitting this to be true of himself. I, really, I mean, I could use some choice words here that I will refrain from for the sake of the younger ears, but yeah, I just don't care. You know? Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. She is wearing him out. (laughs) And what's the teaching? It's that in most cases, persistence is enough. Even when you're dealing with people who lack character or compassion, if you keep asking, if you keep going again and again and again and again, you'll eventually wear them down. And here's the argument Jesus is making. If persistence works with people who don't have character or compassion, don't you think it will work with God? If the friend in bed for the night in Luke 11 wouldn't get up when his friend came knocking asking for bread, if he wouldn't, because of his friendship, get out of bed to help, won't God, who is a true friend, answer you when you knock? If an unjust judge like this isn't motivated by righting an obvious wrong as he should be, but will do the right thing because he's tired of being bothered, won't God the just do what's right? And if even sinful, selfish fathers like me know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give to those who ask of him? See, your energy for prayer, to be keep praying, to keep hoping, to keep dreaming, to keep going to him and not shut your heart down or take your life into your own hands is determined by what you believe to be true of God. And Jesus is saying, this is what we think God is like. We imagine him like this. 
Like the so-called friend of the man who needed help in Luke 15, who when his friend came knocking on the door in the middle of the night, he said, don't bother me, I'm busy, just leave me alone. Oh, I'm so tired of you, you know, just go back home and leave me and let me be. We imagine him to be cold-hearted towards us, like this judge, distant and unfazed by, you know, what's going on in our lives. When he sees us coming, we imagine his shoulders slump and he sighs. He says, oh, here he comes again. What am I going to do with him? I'm so tired. As if we weary him with all of our need. This must be what God's like, right? The answer to the passage the answer that Jesus gives is, no, that's not what God is like at all. But the key is to know, so what's he really like? What's the truth of our relationship with him? What is, what is really true of the way uh, he feels about us and how we can uh, be in relationship with him? And, and it's just here that no matter what's happening in your life, no matter how dark the darkness surrounding you might be, no matter how discouraged and overwhelmed you might feel, the truth of this passage that he longs for us to embrace and hold close to our heart is that you are the object of his love. Jesus says, verse 7, Will not God, the ju- God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? And that's a very important concept there. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, you are his elect. That just means you're his choice. And the power of that should be obvious to us when you consider how many television shows that we have on TV, which revolve around the premise, you know, you round up 30 of the most beautiful women in America and one goofy man who can't seem to put one foot in front of the other, and one by one he gets to eliminate them, uh, you know, based up, you know, until there's only one left, right? Don't act like, I know you know, you may not watch them or you may not admit you watch that stuff, but you know it's out there. And the one, you know, then there's his choice, there's his elect, the one that he desires more than all the others. And the irony is that in these shows that we watch or don't watch, uh, is that all of this happens over the course of a month or two, which, is, which I find hilarious. It's all fabricated and based upon chemistry, whatever that is. Not history, not a true... I mean, I think they meet you know, their families or whatever for 20 minutes. Not, not a real knowledge of the other person. So really, it's silly at the end of the day, isn't it? It's entertainment. But listen to what the psalmist says. Listen to what the Bible says about the Lord's knowledge of you. He says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise up, you search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You knit me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. (laughs) Listen, do you know that God knows you like that? He knows you like that, and you're still his choice. He knows the mistakes you've made. He knows the secret sins that your heart condemns you for that nobody else knows about. He's aware of the times that you've hurt people and the times that they've hurt you. He's seen you at your very worst and at your very best. He knows knows all the ways that you're broken and all the ways that you're beautiful. He knows all the way to the bottom of you and you're still his choice. From all eternity, he set his love on you. And for all eternity, there will not be a single moment that causes him to regret that decision. And that's what it means to be his elect. That he loves you because he loves you, because he loves you, because he loves you, not because you're lovable. He's a God of grace. And though the mountains depart and the hills be removed, his steadfast love shall not depart from you, nor will his covenant love be removed from you. 
truly nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. What that means is that God has made up his mind about us. We are his elect. Even our sins cannot make him change his mind about us because in Jesus Christ he's dealt with our sins so that there might be no obstacle to his love. His choice of you meant his death for you. His choice of me meant his death for me. His choice of us meant his death for us and he still chose us. That's the gospel. And your prayers are fueled by what you think God is like. That's what Jesus is teaching here. But this is what God is like. This is how God feels about you. And, and what he's saying is it should shape the whole of your life. It should make you bold and bold in prayer like the widow in the story. Don't shut your heart down. Don't quit. Don't stop showing up for life. Don't let the pain and the sadness and the fear cause you to take your life in your own hands or to just give up, but keep going to him. But let me finish with this. What about this promise in verse 8 here when, when we're told, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith upon the earth? And the commentators are unsure about exactly what it means. It's very cryptic here. One of the places where there isn't a whole lot of light. But, but you know, it, you know the, what we have to deal with is it doesn't, it, you know, life doesn't feel like God often comes speedily. We are left to wait and to wonder and to worry so what, do we, what does this mean here? And I think we can say it doesn't mean sooner rather than later. We know that doesn't align with what we really experience. And it doesn't mean that there's always a happy ending in store. But what it is, is it's a statement of God's readiness, I think. What, what Jesus is saying here that Peter echoes later is God is not slow to come to our aid. He does not hesitate to help us. As soon as you pray, he jumps to action. He immediately goes to work for you, even though the full measure of all that he's done to rescue and save and comfort you might not be known for you for a million years. If you call to him, he answers. If you knock, he opens. So great is his love and his heart for you. So go to him. Go to him. That's what Jesus asks. And so let's do that in these moments we have at the very end together. Let's pray. Would you pray with me? Father, we are of weary heart because of the brokenness of the world that we live in and the brokenness that exists inside of us, it's like this perfect, um, this perfect storm of, of sin and, um, and despair that causes us to, to shuffle through life with hardly the energy to put one foot in front of the other. Most days it's hard to even get out of our pajamas and get into life if we're honest. Uh, and yet you've called us to so much more than that. You desire that we be full of hope and longing and dreaming and expecting and... Uh, working hard for the sake of your gospel and your kingdom on the earth. And so we do pray that as we sing this song and we express our weariness and our, and our um, despair to you, that you would come and minister to our hearts, that you would comfort us with the comfort of Christ, that you would begin to change us and take our weary, burdened hearts and fill them with hope and joy in you, that we might be a people that have been given the ministry of prayer and in praying that we might glorify and honor you, uh, that you might fill our lives with good work that is the fruit of the spirit of prayer that you put in us. So Jesus, come now uh, and, and, and minister to us. Holy Spirit, come. And when we do not know how to pray as we ought, come and take our utterances, our groanings, and our longings and bring them before the throne of God. Come and, and work in us in these moments to change us so that we might honor you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. So receive the promise of this benediction that no matter what it is that you go to face when you leave this room, uh, he is ready and able to save, um, full of pity, love, and power. That's the promise of these words. And so uh, receive them. May they be food for your soul. May they be the strength that you need uh, as you go uh, to the places that he sends you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.